a pleasant good evening, Mets fans, and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Your eyes do not deceive you. It's a new pleasant good evening on a Friday. It's not a Monday. We are doing something very special today because we have a very, very special guest that Jack and I are both very excited to have on in just a moment. And before we introduce Justin Toscano, as I'm sure you know who's coming on because you read the title of the episode, uh, Jack, how's your week been, man? It's 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 been uh it's been good. It's been a mobile week. We had a lot of transactions. I think the biggest transaction of all of them was that I moved into a college dorm yesterday, or I guess two days ago. If you're listening to this now, that is obviously the big storyline because I haven't been on a college campus in nearly a year with all my stuff here. We have classes that start Friday. I'm very scared. I'm very. I'm not gonna lie. I'm very scared. So I'm like trying to distract myself with what should be a really really fun episode because. We've been trying to get Justin on for a little while. We had a little bit of a, you know, we were planning on having him on before some of uh, what transpired two weeks ago transpired between us and Mesmerized, which is, you know, not, again, not really worth getting into, but I'm very excited now. We have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. We got a few things to square away before we get into that. So I think I'll just explain to those listening. We lost two very good uh, Met names guys we won't remember, but guys who we also will in a different sense. Uh, Jake Marisnik is a Cub and Jed Lowry is an Oakland Athletic again. Uh, also, Ali Sanchez and Corey Oswalt have both been designated for assignment. That's kind of a bummer. Hopefully they both stay in the in the system. I know I was one of few people who like really saw something in Corey Oswalt. And because he does have some acumen as a starting pitcher, there's a better chance than not than that that a team looking for depth will claim him. Uh, and then Sanchez, I didn't have as much of an opinion on just because I didn't, you know, I barely saw him in 2020. But uh, that's sort of those spots went to Albert Almora Jr. for one thing. And for another, we had to make room for the newest acquisition, Khalil Lee, which Sam, why don't you uh, give us a little bit more detail about what we're getting here? Yeah, I'll I'll, uh, I'll intro Khalil for for us in, in just a second. But before we do, I'll I'll voice my opinion on on those kind of four names that the Mets are losing slash lost. Mariznick, basically uh, swapping with Albert Almora in terms of you know teams. Mariznick I met last year, Almora a Cub last year, and now they are on the reverse. Um, so you know, good luck in in Chicago, Jake. Uh, Jed Lowry is uh, an Oakland athletic, a minor league contract with the A's and we wish Jed all the best, but man, that contract was, was real silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Ali Sanchez and Corey Oswalt, both DFA'd, like you mentioned, I think Oswalt, if he doesn't clear, I think there's a pretty good chance he winds up overseas. He seems like a guy who, who would have interest, you know, in Korea or in Japan, somewhere in Asia. And then uh, Ali Sanchez I really think the odds that Ali clears are, are pretty good because the Mets are a little strapped in the catcher department uh, at the, in the upper minors. I mean, it's like below McCann and Nito. I think the third catcher, the only other, th- the only other catcher on the 40 man now is uh, Patrick Mazika. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's not much of a catcher. So. Yeah. And then after him, it's like David Rodriguez. And after yeah. David Rodriguez, you basically have like a black hole. If Yeah. There's the, there's Nick Mayer, who who is a really just a defense only catcher. He he won't he's won't hit at all, but he has cool mustache. Last I checked, so that's something interesting. Yeah. But he's nowhere close. Uh, yeah. So the that's that's where we stand on there. I think Sanchez probably clears because I don't think the Mets would DFA 
a defense first catcher that they kind of need right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless they were either bringing in someone like a Rene Rivera again, who was probably just sitting by the phone waiting for the Mets or, uh, or they thought he'd clear. So um, yeah, Khalil Lee. So last night we caught wind of this three, three team trade earlier in the afternoon, Mike Mayer um, basically tweeted out uh, this is Wednesday. We're talking about right now. Cause obviously this video is posting on Thursday. We're recording or uh, posting on Friday. We're recording on Thursday. The, the, Mike Mayer tweeted out on Wednesday afternoon that he's, he's hearing that the Mets are, are working on something, that the trademark is heating up. And it turned out what they had been working on at that time was getting involved in this three-team trade. Basically, it's an Andrew Benintendi center deal. Benintendi goes from the Red Sox to the Royals. Uh, and the Red Sox get back Franchi Cordero, who is just a ton of fun. He never makes contact, but when he, do, he's, when he does, he's basically Mike Trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, he goes back to the Red Sox as does uh, two players to be named later from the Royals. Josh Winkowski, who the Mets got from the Blue Jays in the Steven Matz trade, and a player to be named later from the Mets. So the Red Sox are getting five players back, headlined by Winkowski and Franchi Cordero, and then those three players to be named later. Mm-hmm. The other piece is what, what the Mets are getting. The Mets are getting Khalil Lee from the Royals. And Khalil Lee is a very, very interesting prospect. He is high ceiling. He is low floor. There is a lot of variability in the type of player we might get here, but he is tools up as hell. He, the dude can fly. He swiped 20, he uh, swiped 53 bags in uh, 65 attempts in, in double a in 2019. And the last time he uh, played a full season, uh, left-hand hitter, left-hand thrower. So like I said, very fast. He's also got like a hell of an arm. He's got like a howitzer. Um, capable of playing center field, but the defense is not quite where we want it to be. Doesn't take the best routes, so he might wind up in a corner, but there's speed, and it's also been like a year since he's been on a field, so honestly, who knows? Maybe he's made improvements in that category. Uh, He hit 17 home runs in his first full season in single A, which is good. However, he hasn't shown that kind of power yet, but he is capable of hitting the baseball very, very hard. And, and to all fields. And to all fields, right. Uh, his issue has kind of been he hits the ball on the ground too much, which is okay when you're fast, but we like hard-hit fly balls better than we like hard-hit ground balls. And if he can switch things up in the swing department a little bit, hit for a little more power, I think that would benefit him long-term. One thing that he's got going for him is he has a really solid approach, almost Nimmo-esque. He takes his walks, 366 on base career in the minors, and um, this is a guy that if, if the swing change, if there is a swing change and it looks like there might be a swing change based on his winter league stuff this year, there's a chance that this guy is a, a top hundred prospect type talent. Um, at the very least he's borderline and he's like the Mets sixth or seventh best prospect sliding in right now. So the Mets basically stole prospect from the Royals. Don't really know why the Royals were so keen to give him up for, for nothing from the Mets, but you know, I'm I'm certainly not complaining, and, and we'll talk more about it with Justin in, in, in a few minutes. But, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking about Khalil Lee. I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, you basically said uh, everything that needs to be said. I, for one, really like it when there's uh, – when we look at a prospect who has, like, a pretty markedly good tool. In this case, he kind of has two because he's always been able to get on base, and he's improved year to year when it comes to stealing bases and – you know, making the right decisions when it comes to stealing bases. I mean, 53 out of 65 is, is, you know, it's pretty good. It's not like, you know, spotless, but it, 
it's, you know, it's something to, I think, look forward to. And then you have the fact that there are just videos of him on Twitter, like mashing the ball. Like this is, this is obviously something that I think the Mets feel that they can carve out of him. Uh, and he's only 22, but he's also pretty close to big league ready. I think he probably, if the Mets decided to slot him in, like with in competition with, or even ahead of Guillermo radio, like, I think that would make some sense. I don't think it's, you know, you need to see what he does in spring training, but it's, it's definitely something that has a lot of potential. Anyway, that's my take on it. Uh, now we're going to bring Justin Toscano on, uh, who probably also has some takes on this. Uh, for those who aren't in the know about Justin Toscano, he's been around the beat now for like a year and a half. Uh, he covers them for the record uh, with NorthJersey.com at Justin C. Toscano on Twitter. Uh, before he was with Jersey, he uh, had covered uh, college football, college basketball, and college baseball across about five years at the Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University, uh, from which he graduated. Uh, he's been on about a dozen podcast episodes or so between Locked On Mets with Ryan Finkelstein and Simply Amazing with Tim Ryder, both of whom are former uh, associates of ours with Metsmerized. Uh, Justin does a lot of great work covering this team. He answers a lot of important questions, asks a lot of super important questions. Uh, if you guys aren't following him, you definitely should. Hopefully we have him around for a pretty long time and we're pretty excited to have him on. So without further ado, you guys, here's, here's Justin Toscano. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. Good to have you, dude. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time, Justin. We're really excited to have you on. And so there's been a lot kind of going on in Mets world. Uh, obviously, we're recording this here on Thursday afternoon. So last night was the trade between the Mets, the Red Sox, and the Royals. There were a lot of moving parts, and I don't think a lot of fans are super clear on what exactly the, the Mets were trying to accomplish by getting involved in a trade that didn't necessarily immediately impact them. So uh, if you can maybe give your thoughts on, on the trade from, from a, a beat writer's perspective in, in acquiring Khalil Lee. Right, yeah, Khalil Lee was a guy who um, last year was the Royals' eighth-best prospect, and he's an outfield prospect, which is the important part there, because of the Mets' farm system, which isn't particularly good or deep, you know, and it's got a few elite players at the, at the top, but past that isn't too deep. Outfield is probably their thinnest position, you know, at the top of that farm system. So they've got Pete Crow Armstrong, but really nobody else that are, you know, that's a name to know there. So Khalil Lee gives them a name to know, also gives them if they, you know, if they wanted to use it, um, another prospect that they might dangle, you know, in a, that they could dangle theoretically in a future trade. Um, if they, you know, because obviously you would assume Pete Crow Armstrong is a guy that is going to be untouchable. So Khalil Lee is another talented outfield prospect should slot, obviously an immediate top 10 entry into their system. Um, but the most important part being is that he is an outfield prospect and that's really the position that they're thinnest at, you know, they had a couple shortstops. One of them came up last year, you know, they've still got Ronnie Mauricio, but they've got a couple of right-handers and Matt Allen and, and JT Ginn. But I mean, they, they needed more outfield talent in that system. And then this is an immediate infusion of that, especially for what they gave up and Josh Winkowski getting him, you know, a right-handed pitcher in the Steven Matz trade. He was a guy that, well, you know, a good, prospect they you know they probably could afford to to give up here especially to get something of need in that system right so Winkowski is a guy that you know I think a lot of people I think Pipeline had him around the 26th best prospect in the Mets system after getting him for Mets and, and Khalil Lee I think they have his number seven so 
a swap that in terms of the, the system itself as a prospect guy, I think I, I can talk on this a little bit is definitely a, a worthwhile swap. Uh, it's just kind of like when you look at it from the outside, it's a weird trade to, to happen. It's a weird trade to get involved in because the Mets didn't necessarily look like they gave up anything, but they got kind of a toolsy high upside guy in Lee. Obviously there's a player to be named later going to the Red Sox who we don't know the name of yet. It'll probably be a while before we know that because uh, most minor leaguers haven't played any sort of real baseball in a year, and the Red Sox are going to want to evaluate through the spring and see, you know, whoever on their list uh, is doing. But it's it's the it's a really good move, I think personally, and I'm sure Justin, you probably agree. It's a move that that you know the Dodgers would make. It's you're essentially buying a prospect, and you're improving your system, and you're improving this upper minors depth that was really, really thin. Like you had Drew Ferguson, who the Mets took in the, the minor league portion of the rule five, you, Tim Tebow, like there's really not much there in terms of the Syracuse outfield. And you can stick Khalil Lee in there with some upside. He's 22. He's probably going to be major league ready by the end of 2021. It, it certainly helps. Yeah. He slots in behind peak pro Armstrong too on pipeline. Like I'm pretty sure he's their next best hitter. Uh, and, you know, pipeline's not the, the be all end all, but it is something. Uh, but yeah, yeah. To, to your point, Sam, there's really no, uh, there's also like Janesh Fargus, but the Mets have sort of been doing a rinse repeat the last few years with outfield depth where they sign a few guys like, you know, a Carlos Gomez or a Gregor Blanco, or I think last year it was Melky Cabrera at one point. So this yeah. is, this is big for them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, kind of what you guys mentioned, I mean, they, the upper minors depth needed to improve. And then they, they did that in the rule, you know, the minor league portion, the rule five draft, but Khalil Lee is a guy that that guy's not only upper minors depth. I mean, he's got some big leagues, got big league potential. I mean, to slot him in there and the, I always go back to well now fired Jared Porter, but his comment about just how on their list at the time they had had, you know, five or six guys that they felt, they wanted to stay away from in trades. He wouldn't call them untouchable. I asked the question. That's why, that's why I remember because I wanted to know who was untouchable and he wouldn't call them untouchable, but they had a list of five or six guys they wanted to stay away from. Now, my thought with the Khalil Lee and anyone else they could get is if, could they dangle, you know, six numbers, six to 10 in that system and in trades for, you know, whether it be like a Chris Bryan or, or another deal or something. I mean, I don't know, like, you know, it's, it's so soon ago that we haven't, you know, we don't know much um, yet, but it's, it's good to strengthen that, that top 10, especially because, you know, like you mentioned, Sam, they, they basically essentially bought a prospect and um, for something they really weren't going to use. And Winkowski, a guy who's got potential, but they didn't need as much. Um, and like you mentioned, Jack, they've just been cycling through outfielders and outfield options and, and depth options there. And it's just um, at a point you have to strengthen the infrastructure of the system. And I think this is a good way to do that. But yeah, it, it was a weird trade because it didn't really make sense from Boston's vantage point, um, in, in my opinion. Like, it was just kind of weird for them. But um, yeah, Khalil Lee, a guy with upside. I mean, he's only 22. Like you, I think he was only 17 when he he was drafted in the third round years ago. So I mean, this is a guy with potential upside. Should immediately slot in, you know, nicely in Syracuse. Yeah, I think that, like you said, they could go ahead and dangle him in a, in a maybe a Bryant package, or or if we're getting creative, maybe Sonny Gray and Eugenio Suarez. I just think personally, when you're looking at it in through the lens that we're kind of uh, approaching it right now in terms of the the upper minors depth 
it's it's weird for me to say that they're gonna like spin him and and swap him somewhere else because the, he did just kind of bring an aspect to the farm system that was absent. So in order, you know, you're bringing in an outfielder who can play in AAA with some upside where you don't really have anyone like that. I, I think it'd be kind of confusing to go in and throw them elsewhere. I do think it's a possibility. I think that they could definitely do this. I think it's more likely that they pull someone else out from that kind of range who they're more comfortable dealing with from like a, a, a point of, of depth uh, rather than going with like with uh, with Lee in general. But I'm definitely intrigued by what's next for the Mets. And we've kind of had more conversations today about Chris Bryant on, on the Twitter timeline has been something that's been uh, speculated. And I, I kind of wanted to, to get your perspective on, on what the Mets talks for Chris Bryant are looking like right now. If you're hearing anything in particular, I know you're relatively new on the beat. I don't know how quickly sources can, uh, can, can prop up for you, but uh, what do you, what are you thinking about Chris Bryant? I mean, I think he's a guy who had a rough 2020, but I don't put a lot of stock into that. Like, I don't put a lot of stock into somebody's – or a ton of stock into somebody's great 2021. I mean, he, he would be an immediate upgrade there, obviously. Um, the thing the thing that will be weird with that package is the lack of team control with, with Bryant going forward, you know, after this year. And so it's, um, it's weird because I know multiple reports have had, you know, from national guys have had, um, you know, the Cubs – for example, asking for Francisco Alvarez. And obviously, like, that's going to be, you know, pretty much a no-go, a non-starter in, in this situation. I do think he immediately upgrades the Mets. But um, I know, I think it was Decomo and then Gelbs did something on SNY that I agreed with. I'm not completely off the J.D. Davis train yet. Like, I think there's, I think there's something there. I think the Mets could upgrade, obviously, at third, and Bryant would be an immediate upgrade, um, obviously. But I do think... I don't think he's JD is as much as a, of a liability as, as a lot of people think. I just think there's, there's a lot of, I wouldn't even say greed. I just think when you have a new owner like this, who has shown that he's willing to spend and the team wants to win, I think there's more momentum toward these Bryant talks. And I think the most recent report that I saw um, was Andy Martino, just saying that the talks, you know, had, not even intensified, but just were there and, and existed after, you know, people had reported that they, um, they had stopped earlier in the off season. It's definitely intriguing, but I, I just don't know how big of a package the Cubs would want. It's going to be a fine line because with the lack of team control and I don't, you know, I don't know if the Mets would be likely to extend him or not because we have Lindor and Conforto. Um, it's just, it doesn't warrant a heavy prospect package from that perspective, but Chris Bryan is a, I mean, a bona fide superstar player, you know, in a guy who immediately upgrades his team. Um, and really, I think the more important thing is if you get Chris Bryant, it takes this team over the top, this roster specifically. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, the general narrative, I think the, the greed point is definitely like, there is, I think, a sort of jaded nature to what's been going on, at least around Twitter, because we, went into 2021 with this huge bang with Lindor and Carrasco. And then on the other side of the coin, they have the fact that they were willing to put just about $40 million into a year or two from Trevor Bauer. And then that sort of fell through. So they sort of not only got exposed in the sense that they 
came away from the sweepstakes for three top free agents without any of them, but also the fact that they were willing to put $40 million more dollars into their basket for the offseason. Uh, do you, I mean, with what's been said about Bryant and also what's been said on the Cincinnati side with Sonny Gray and, 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 and you know, Suarez, uh, do you feel at all like there is a route that the Mets can really take to lock in uh, this roster by the end of the offseason? Because pitchers and catchers are, are, are around the corner. And also there are a lot of free agents left. I don't know what you think of like uh, potentially going after Justin Turner as a third baseman or if they're better suited even just pursuing something in center field because they do have a lot of options and they've shown that they have a lot more to spend. I, I do wonder just from your angle and your, your side of things, if there is something that they'd be best suited doing. I honestly thought it was going after George Springer and like upping their offer there. And I think I'm glad you brought up the Trevor Bauer point because I do think that's fair. Like you're fans of a big market team. You should demand the best of this big market team run by people, you know, run by a billionaire worth like $14.6 billion. Like you should demand the best of this team and the best roster, you know, every year. And like, it doesn't help their credibility when, you know, you see, some of these reports that they're not in on, you know, back-end starters, but then they're willing to throw, you know, 40 million at Trevor Bauer. So then you're saying like, okay, you know, couldn't they have signed so-and-so? So I thought locking in the roster, I thought George Springer was perfect, honestly, because I think, I thought he would have been the perfect balance to look. He's, I think he's 31 now. Um, probably not going to play center field for his entire deal there in Toronto, but like, I thought he was the perfect balance between not knowing whether there's going to be a DH you know, and so balancing both sides of that, because now if they were to go, like, I thought Jackie Bradley was a good option, but that's when I, you know, that's when it looked like they might be able to figure something out with the universal DH. Now, I think, I mean, I don't think the roster is bad now. And I think, I think they would be fine going into it with this roster if they added another back-end option like a Jay to Rizzi type guy um and and I think like I think just to strengthen that back end of the rotation give them some depth um and at least hold them over until Noah Syndergaard returns assuming I guess we're all assuming and banking that he's going to look like himself uh which I guess isn't you know a hundred percent of a guarantee but if you know we are I I think this roster is you know good as is should you always look to improve yes and like if they they don't have to give up a ton for a Bryant or yeah like you Enyo Suarez um yes I think there's an immediate upgrade there and I'm not going to deny that but if they don't like I'm not into the narrative that the offseason went super sideways because I still think they had a very positive offseason so I think this roster like is closer to contention than any they've had probably in years right this is uh this is something that we we talked about uh earlier this week in our, in our previous episode with Allison McCaig is that uh, there's like this weird narrative on the timeline that the Mets screwed up the off season, that it's an abject failure because they didn't do anything big after Lindor. When that just, you can't say that it's not true. First of all, you can't discount the Lindor Carrasco acquisition because that's the best move of the off season for anyone, for any team. You acquired a number two starter behind DeGrom and you acquired the best or second best shortstop in the league, in my opinion. I think Tatis is probably above him now, but he's still Francisco Lindor. And it's not like those are the oh, that's the only move they made. They went and they they filled holes that they needed to fill, maybe not with super exciting names. Like an Albert Amora is not necessarily an exciting guy, but bringing in a defense for a center fielder was a, a need that they needed to address, and they addressed it. 
the depth stuff is something that gets a fan like me excited. It's not going to get, you know, Joe Schmo and Schenectady excited, but uh, bringing in a Yamamoto and a Milk Williams and a Diaz and a Ride Foley and, and Khalil Lee, that's stuff that is, excites me as a fan because this isn't stuff that the previous ownership group and the previous front office would do. You address the, the need for a back-end starter, and I 100% agree with you. Uh, we've heard over the past couple weeks uh, that the Mets have had some conversations with Jake Arrieta and James Paxton even recently over the last few days. We got a, a price figure, a ballpark price figure from Andy Martino on both those guys today. Arietta is asking for six and a half mil. Paxton is asking somewhere in the ballpark of 11 mil per year. Uh, I know my opinion is that they should stay the hell away from Jake Arietta. Um, curious to know your, your, your feelings on, on that. That that's interesting because I, that would be a major risk. Like at that point, why wouldn't they have just, you know, gone after another one of these guys has been risky, but like, I, I think the only reason that they might think about it, and this is just me speculating is because that six and a half mil looks a lot more palatable than giving somebody like James Paxton, 11 million where at, but I mean, you know, if this new ownership group, you don't want to fill these holes cheaply. I would personally go with like a Paxton or an Odorizzi. Like I've seen, you know, the reports about what Odorizzi is asking. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's not super cheap, but I think it's, it's a guy who look, doesn't have much worse career numbers than, you know, than Trevor Bauer. Like his, it, it's like, so it's just like, I think they need another guy like that, but I would, Jake Arrieta, I'm not sure if he has anything left in the tank. I mean, I, you know, I don't, that one would be, that would be a major risk to me. Um, so I would, I would personally go with, with some, you know, one of the other guys, but I do think they definitely need somebody in there because if you look at the current rotation and you project, or you hope this doesn't happen, you know, but if there's an injury to Peterson or Lucchese or, or somebody like that, then you're, you know, you're in that same position. And then what if, you know, one of your other starters isn't performing well, and then you're in the position again, where you've got Jacob deGrom um and Carrasco or Stroman a couple question marks whatever that may be um so I think they definitely do need a guy back there but I'm not sure Jake Arrieta is that guy yeah weird that there's been very very little chatter around Odorizzi it feels like consider I I thought he'd be off the board in a short order after uh after Bauer because he's the the next best guy on the on the market but you know maybe he saw Bauer making 40 mil and he's trying to push for half that which is probably not quite what he's worth but yeah I I if we're gonna go out and and put money on a guy who's a question mark on a risk. I don't think we should do it on Arietta because not only is Arietta older, he's also been real bad when healthy the last couple of years. And he's like not a real fun guy to be around in terms of if you believe the stories and, and, and the, the, you know, his interviews with the Phillies and all that stuff. He appears to be rather combative <laughs> uh, as a, as a way to put that politely. Um, <laughs> Not, not a kind of guy that I want on my team, especially after we just went through the whole Trevor Bauer thing where, you know, we don't want shitheads on our team. I know, you know, stay away from Arietta. Even at six and a half mil, it's still guaranteed money. He's still probably going to be pitching every fifth day if he's healthy. And it just doesn't seem like a worthwhile move. If we're going to make a, if we're going to take a risk, I think Paxton is better. He's younger. I think the stuff is, is better. Um, you know, he was touching 94 in those, uh, those, bullpen sessions he was throwing for teams earlier this offseason which is encouraging i think coming off as many injuries as he as he's had uh i i just i really just don't want jake arietta on the mets i think 
I think I'm allowed to be a little selfish there, but yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely speak to that. I think he's sort of, he's honestly, in my mind, one of the depth options that I wouldn't even trust to, I think, make it through this season. Like the shoulder injuries are a real concern. And I also, I think like, I don't know, just to push it back to the organization for a second, I really like the pitching depth that they have. That's not to say they shouldn't go for like a Taiwan Walker or, or a Rich Hill, but uh you know, I also am really, really intrigued by Jordan Yamamoto and, and Justin, I'm wondering what you, uh, what your thoughts on that are. I mean, pitchers and catchers is coming up. So this is sort of like a, a two-pronged question. And I guess it's a way for us to push away from like strategy and off-season planning. But like, is there any player right now that you're most, I think, intrigued by that they've brought in? And is there someone that you're particularly excited to, to get to look at firsthand? Yeah, that. I'm going to stay away from Lindor on this question because that's the obvious answer of like somebody you would like to watch with your own two eyes. But um, man, that's a good question. I would say, I would say James McCann to be completely honest. Like I think for me, like I never played baseball at as high of a level as these guys, but like the, the catcher pitcher dynamic relationship building dynamic and how that helps you not only, you know, get to know the guy, but manage a staff. Like for me, that that's very interesting. And so I found it, I was really intrigued when he was talking about that throughout his zoom and just how he tries to build relationships with these guys. Not only that, but it'll be an interesting case because his career numbers have gone up. Like he's become a better hitter and he's gotten better defensively, but it's like the defensive sample size in terms of some of the framing numbers isn't like, it's not enough for a full track record. So it's like, I'm interested to see if he, if those numbers continue to, to trend up or if they like level out because with the way his numbers look and the way you, I mean, you could project him out to be, it's going to be a massive upgrade over Wilson Ramos, but you know, Wilson Ramos does have the bat, which yes, I know it, you know, wasn't on display a lot last year, but um, you could, you, you know, if, if James McCann regresses, you know, offensively, then I think a lot of people who love the signing in terms of the fan base aren't going to love it so much. Like people on Twitter, you know, turn on people very quickly. And so I think that that'll be an interesting case, but I'm excited to watch him because I do think he is a, a massive upgrade at catcher and yes it's not jt real muto but like i think especially with a lot of the defensive improvement um the the mets are going to be set there at the backstop especially with nito behind him i think there's i think there's a lot of good there especially because i think nito is a very solid backup a guy who could develop more but i think there's a lot of good there but i would say james mccann just because it seems and it does get you you know a little intrigued because of Marcus Stroman a lot of the other guys have spoken publicly or on Twitter just about how excited they are to work with him yeah I, I also agree with you about Nito I think he's an excellent backup I think I will be I'd be very pleased to hear that that Nito and McCann have uh, any sort of friendship that that develops over the over the spring because the the pitchers that the Mets have prior to this offseason have all been very very complimentary about Nito and have said that they love pitching to Nito and uh, I'm sure that Nito will be able to help McCann learn the pitching staff and transition into the starting catcher role. And, but you're right. I mean, the track record is not super long with McCann. And the question is, is, is this really a guy that was worth four years, you know, of guaranteed money? And, and I think eyes are going to be on that. Obviously a lot of the headlines are going to be on Lindor, but if James McCann doesn't come out of the gate strongly, you know, in April, May, I think that there's going to be a lot of conversations about that contract. I know it's not a huge monetary uh, investment, but 
four years, 40, it's still an investment. It's, it's, it's an investment into a person and uh, not one with a particularly long track record, Jack. I don't know if you have any, anything to add there. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the point about conversation is actually a really good segue for us because, you know, Justin, you've talked a little bit at length about uh, how 2020 as a, as a statistical sample is sort of difficult to gauge. I mean, the other component of this is that these players didn't really, I think, get a lot of time to work together in 2020. I mean, there were about four months of darkness, and I'm sure for you being on the beat in that time, it was... Uh, probably very stressful, even if it wasn't as active as uh, I think we all would have preferred it to be. I mean, I'm, I am curious just if we can sort of uh, move closer to the work you've done and your experiences, what that was like for you, you know, to, to operate in the middle of like a COVID abridged season. What was that like being, I guess you were on Zoom instead of in the clubhouse. Like, how was that different? When, and what are some things that I think we, what do you, what did you take away uh, from your experience that us as fans, we might not have been as, I guess, sure of. For the, for the COVID season itself or the shutdown part? Uh, either one, really. Uh, whichever one I think meant more to you or, or, or affected the way that you look at working on the beat. Uh, just, yeah, it was there, I guess, when they first decided that like spring training camps were going to close was the, what was the, I guess, environment or, yeah, what was the, I guess, vibe like for you, at least having to uh, basically cover baseball as though it was constantly happening and that, that world was constantly spinning and then it suddenly wasn't? Right. Yeah. So I think for me personally, having got on the beat, you know, like only like a half of 2019. So it's like that flew just because that was a crazy year from the Mickey stuff to like just just everything like that was a crazy year. And then like, I was, you know, finally like spring training went well and then it gets shut down. Right. So you're thinking like, God, here we go again. Like it just, you know, like you can't find like your actual, like a groove. And so it gets shut down. And then you're thinking in terms of the job, like that was very different just because you have to figure out a way to put out like unique content when there's nothing happening. Right. So it's just like, that sucks. And everybody's inside. And like, I mean, God, I must have binged like 10 shows, you know, I was still doing work and stuff, but it's like not as much as I'm accustomed to doing at that time of year. And it's just like during a season. Um, so the vibe was kind of weird because nobody knew what was going to happen and everybody's kind of operating first. It was right. They were going to shut down for two, two weeks, right? Like it was going to be a two week delay. And then it was like, oh, you know, maybe not till May, maybe not till June. Like, and then finally we had the summer camp stuff and the COVID season itself, I think what fans don't realize is that it made the job much tougher, right? Because like, I think we all still tweet out or get the same quotes from like a lot of the conversations that somebody's like locker that, you know, the scrums where we're there together. But for me personally, like the most fulfilling part of the job is like telling stories and getting to know like guys and getting to tell fans like who these guys are, what makes them tick, what their personal lives are like, getting an insight into that because I know like I grew up a sports fan. That's the stuff I like to read. So that's the stuff I like to do. Like that means the most to me. Um, and I think that stuff matters more than just like, you know, how's this guy's ankle sprain that he's had for like three months. And, you know, he's just long toss like 90 feet or, you know, like all those updates. But um, now those updates are part of the job, but they're not the most fun part of the job for me personally. So I think that I, it made me realize to never 
like not that I ever did take the clubhouse experience for granted, but I just think it made me realize how much I loved being in the clubhouse, even if it's like a very awkward environment for reporters where like we are just not wanted there, you know, by most of the guys. Um, it's where the best stories come out. Like it's where you, you know, it's where you get to like learn about for me, like a Brad Brock and how, you know, like the Mets utilize his cutter um, and kind of like how he said, you know, they kind of saved his career a little bit um, or how like a Justin Wilson, how Jeremy Hefner helped him with his curveball grip, like things like that. Like you just don't, you know, they might pop up in a conversation in the clubhouse, but you just don't get it on zoom because it's so regimented. It's like one question to the next question, to the next question. And it's like the job as a reporter on those Zooms, it's like, okay, we're going to be getting the same quotes. How do I do this story a little differently, right? So it's like everybody has their own, like maybe their own angle or their own questions they're angling for. So it's like, it's very like disjointed in parts. Um, and I think that's probably the thing fans don't realize is the job is hard as is, but it's harder when you literally can't differentiate yourself because the only access you're getting is through a Zoom. And so like, you just got to do stories in different ways or call different people. But it's just kind of like, I think that was, that was the thing that, that most to me stuck out. I can really appreciate that though. I think that that's a very important point. I mean, just for me, at least I obviously am not on a beat. Uh, I have never been in a professional clubhouse. So my experience is, you know, a, a, a small fraction, if even that of what, uh, you know, you're familiar with, but I definitely think that, there is something to be said about that that in-person interaction and that opportunity too, just like before a game to talk to somebody about, you know, their swing or, or you know, how they felt after they pitched the night before, like how their arm feels, that kind of thing. Like, uh, especially with this team, because it's, I think, taking on a new culture uh, and it's becoming a lot more exciting. That's something that we as fans really want to be a, a part of more. And uh, I think you guys definitely with the work that you do and the reporting you do, give us more access to that. I, I do wonder also if just like looking toward the future and again, like there's no, there's really no knowing what the future is gonna hold, right? Uh, but heading into 2021, we do know that we're probably gonna get a full season. Uh, we probably know that uh, there won't be interruptions, so to speak. Of course, things will still be distanced. We don't really know what's gonna happen with fans. Uh, right. what are some things that I think you're hoping, uh, will be different, I guess, for your experience. And, and I think what you hope will be different from last year while we are getting an opportunity and we are in a sense, getting a semi fresh start. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably what it is. I think the ship, well, I don't know. I'll hold out hope for clubhouse access at some point in 2021. It's going to start out over zoom, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold out hope and keep my fingers crossed, even if that's unrealistic. I don't know how re realistic it is, but I think in terms of your question to answer more directly, getting the fresh start, I think is the thing I'm most looking forward to is because it's just like a 60 game season. It's like, it's a little bit of a season. But it's not really a season. It kind of stinks because it, it, it threw off the game so much because you have guys trying to press because they didn't have one good week and one good week is like a sixth of their season, you know, in a 60 game season or like a, you know, whatever it may be. But um, I, I just think like the opportunity for somewhat of a normal season. Now it's not going to be normal because we've seen what happened in the NFL in the NBA now in you know, hockey, like it, you know, they might have, they're going to have some issues. Like you have to just plan for that for, you know, assume it's going to happen 
but I think the ability for a fresh start for 162 games travel, you know, East to West coast sort of thing, like the regular travel, regular schedule, division schedules, um, interleague, you know, whatever it may be. I think it's going to feel a lot more normal for players. And I think it's going to be a lot more enjoyable for fans as we kind of move out of hopefully, you know, this COVID era and hopefully everybody, you know, getting vaccinated and we have that, hopefully by the summer and, and get fans back in there. But I think it's just going to be nice for fans to have this full 162 game season where we don't always have to point out the caveats that we did in this, in a 60 game, you know, condensed season where everything's happening so quickly and the game just like, you know, it, you know, it's, it's tough to evaluate because how much stock do you put into, it goes both ways too. Like how, how much stock do you put into Dominic Smith's breakout season versus Chris Bryant's awful 2021? And I just think like, it's just, or 2020, but it's just so hard to know, to be able to project and predict those things that, I mean, I, that's what I'm, that's what I'm most looking forward to is that clean slate to have like a, a fresh full season that feels official. Yeah. So Justin, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. Um, but before we let you go, um, we got a bit of a, a tradition here on, on the podcast. And um, we talked about it before we started recording with you. So I think, I hope you're prepared. Uh, we like to remember some guys. So, so <laughs> let's, let's see what you got, Justin. Who are you remembering this week? All right. I'm going to go with, man, you know, I, I had to. The, okay, so the Khalil Lee trade, because I grew up in San Diego. So the Khalil Lee trade made me think of Khalil Green. Um, and that was the one I was going to go with, but I'll, I'll go with a little bit of a more high-level one. I just remember, like, being a kid and, like, the juice you would feel when, like, the Padres were good and, like, you'd hear Hell's Bells come on, you know, before the ninth and, like, Trevor Hoffman would come out, man. Like, just that his classic wind-up and the leg kit, like, the po- it's just, like, I don't know, man. Like I, so I was thinking of Khalil green, but he was quickly overtaken by hell's bells. I don't even know why I thought of hell's bells, but I did right now. Cause I was working out earlier and it came on like, I don't know, man, like the juice I would feel. So I, he's not, he's not only some guy, I mean, he's a hall of famer, but uh, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big closer guy. Cause I just love the, I think one of my, probably my favorite part of sports is like the emotion and like the anticipation for the moments. And like, that's the coolest thing about baseball is that like, Okay, like if there's a big play coming up in football, you might hear like five seconds of enter Sandman during a 30 second timeout or like basketball, same deal. But it's like, man, like baseball, like when the closer comes out man, like yeah. big game, you know, heated yeah. division rivalry, whatever it may be, like there's some juice in the stadium. And I think that made me think of Trevor Hoffman. Um, but that is the some guy I am remembering. I love that. Yeah, Hoffman sort of like, I mean, we talk a lot about Mariano Rivera with Enter Sandman, but Hoffman really, I think, kind of with the Hell's Bells thing, because he would enter to that chiming. Like, it wasn't like you'd hear like ACDC at the beginning. You literally hear a bell and he'd come out of the bullpen. Like, that's the coolest thing. And this was from an era, too. I mean, obviously now the Padres are, you know, flying high and I think they have a really bright future. But before that, you'd really have to go back to the you know 2004 to 2007 era team with like the Khalil Greens and the you know the Mike Camerons who we're familiar with he's not the guy I'm remembering but that's just one guy like that's a great group and that's I mean yeah Hoffman's really cool I love walkout songs too I think that's just like 
easily the most underrated part of going to a game is when your team's winning and like the closer comes out and there's just this, this, this new aura that's created. So that's a really good one. Uh, I got I got, I got two things on the Hoffman thing. Yeah, do it. Do it. Sam. Maybe, maybe three things. If I'm just going to quickly say Khalil green would have been an excellent call, but obviously we are open to remembering all sorts of guys here, whether they pitched in one game or whether they're hall of famers. My second thing is if Trevor Hoffman's a hall of famer, so is Billy Wagner, but we don't have to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew that was coming. And my third thing is, uh, I don't know why, maybe this is just the level of like brainworms I have from being so online and being constantly remembering guys. When you said Padres closer, Hell's Bells, I don't know why, but my brain immediately went to Heath Bell. You're right. And I feel like that would have been a great kind of like Mets Padres connection there. But obviously, like Trevor, Trevor Hoffman walked out to Hell's Bells. Heath Bell just has Bell in his last name. I, but my brain made that connection. We don't have to remember Heath Bell. That's a whole can of worms. <laughs> it, it, any day is a good day to remember Heath Bell. I, is it? Sometimes. <laughs> the Mets beat up on Heath Bell. It's definitely a good time to remember him. Right. That's like, I can think of at least like three games that the Mets just destroyed him in. But. Not to mention that, that he was on the Mets and then they dealt him. Uh, he, he was pissed about that too. He had yeah. a chip on his shoulder, so it was a little bit fun to give it back to him. Anyway, Sam, who do you have? I'll go last. Oh, oh, who do I have? Definitely not a Hall of Famer, but uh, you know what? I'm not even going to intro him. I he needs no introduction. His name is Pat Mish. Uh, I'm going with the lefty. I'm going with Pat Mish, who pitched for the Mets uh, 2009 through 2011, and uh, his his greatest career accolade was uh, not in the major leagues. It was in Japan where he threw a perfect game. And, you know, kudos to him when he was on the Oryx Buffaloes. Um, I believe it was in 2016. So I'm remembering Pat Mish mostly because I just wanted to get a starting pitcher out there for reasons that you guys at home don't need to know. Jack knows exactly what I'm talking about, but. Yeah, uh, we're almost yeah. there. We're, we're, we're getting to the reveal on that, which I'm excited about. But we're getting close. We got something planned. Yeah, I don't have many uh, catchers that I've remembered. And just thinking the Met Padre connection made me think a lot about Henry Blanco, who the Mets actually signed like right after he played for the Padres. And I think that the fan base and also the organization, like really, they were really fond of him before he left San Diego. And I think he's generally a pretty respected figure because he worked very, very well with pitchers. Uh, but Henry Blanco is the guy I'm going to remember. Uh, I just... Yeah, I have distinct memories of him hitting a walk-off homer against the Giants. Like the night, the morning, the, the afternoon after Rod Barajas had hit a walk-off homer against the Giants. And it was just like the craziest yes. thing because I'm pretty sure those two combined for like 50 runs batted in the entire season. Uh, it, was, it was not a great year, 2010, but Henry Blanco is, they called him Hank White, which is one of the best nicknames uh, for... I think any player. So I'm remembering Henry Blanco. Henry Blanco, he's a coach somewhere now. He's a bullpen coach somewhere. I want to say Washington. I could definitely be wrong. Maybe it's the Cubs. I'm gonna look this up and then we'll but, and then we'll get out of here. Because I'm while sure you look that up, I'll continue musing about Henry Blanco for Henry Blanco for a, a moment here. Dude was like the most square dude I've ever seen, just in terms of body shape. <laughs> like his his shoulders were level. And his head was like down. He just, he, he was a block and 
that's what you want out of catch out of a catcher. He had a catcher's body if I'd ever seen one. And he was those those consecutive uh, walk off home runs by catchers, electric moment in that 2010 season. Just elite stuff for 10 year old Sam. I just oh man, I still remember. I get tingles when I think of of those two walk off home runs consecutively. Do you have your do you have a do you have the answer here, Jack? Yeah, he is the coach for the Nationals right now, so that's pretty cool. Oh, I'm so smart. I don't know what to say about it. Yeah, you you seem to you got everything down there. They're really teaching you at at Syracuse, huh? Right. Uh, I don't think you can get this level of education in in Arizona. But uh, oh man, yeah. Wow, They're just throwing a shot right after we remember some guys, man. Yeah, hitting him with the door. Why don't you, Sam? Yeah, I was gonna say he's basically telling me not to let the door hit me on the way out as I leave the Zoom room later. Well, I, yeah, I think I speak for Sam when I say that this has been a joy and a half, Justin. This is this has been really fun. We're so grateful that you could come on and talk to us about the Mets outlook and also the Mets offseason and uh, what you're expecting and what have what you've experienced as a as a beat writer. The beat's a lot better having you on than it was when it didn't. Uh, this has been a real treat. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, this th- thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Thanks guys. No, it was, it was a blast. I'm, you know, grateful that you had me on. Thanks for the kind words. And uh, yeah, it was was really fun getting to talk shop with you guys. Yeah. So Justin, again, I want to echo that. Thank you so much for joining us and for Justin Toscano and Jack Hendon. My name has been Sam Lebowitz. This has been it for a very special midweek edition of pleasant. Good evening and Mets fans have a pleasant. Good evening. Thank you.